This episode is sponsored by LubeMarine, your global partner for pioneering lubrication solutions. This is Green Seas, the podcast by Tradewinds about the environment and the business of the ocean. I'm Eric Briante Martin, and today we're going to travel to Singapore, well, virtually in my case, to ask who's going to pay to clean up shipping's greenhouse gas emissions. Last week, many of my colleagues congregated in the Lion City for the Tradewind Shipowners Forum Singapore, where decarbonizing shipping was a key theme. I wasn't invited, but my jet-setting boss, Julian Bray, was, and he sat down with executives from major Japanese shipowners NYK Line and MOL, major charterer Fortescue Metals Group, the Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization, and bunker company Singfuels. Julian posed this question, who's going to pay for reducing shipping's greenhouse gas footprint? Let's listen in. I'd like to put that first of all to Andrew Hoare at the far end. Now, Andrew is the global head of shipping at uh, Fortescue Future Industries, and that's the energy transition affiliate of uh, Fortescue Metals Group. It's not the uh, not uh, FMG itself. It's the uh, it's the subsidiary there. Andrew, who is going to take responsibility for this huge task? Is it going to be you, or is it going to be the ship owner? Well, I know who's putting a lot of money into it at the moment, uh, and that would be groups such as ourselves. I think we have a fully costed um, route to decarbonisation of the industrial group, which is $6.2 billion. So it's clear probably at the front end um, where the money is going to be coming from. But I think what was interesting in the, in the earlier session today, there was the beginning of a discussion, or maybe perhaps even the consumer might be paying, and how easy it is for container companies to do it, but how impossible it is for industrial groups to do it. I think you know, we, we recognise that. I think a very uh, we have these analogies. We have the, the SAF, and it's a cappuccino to go and for each passenger on the plane to go and fly SAF. And uh, you know, for a car, you know, a ton of steel, it's $3,000. I think if we put these numbers into perspective, that's going to set us on the journeys how we're going to get this to be, to be funded. But I think obviously this is longer term. It's correct that it's much easier for containers because um, it's FMCG. But it doesn't mean that it's not easy or potentially able for the rest of us. If you look at groups like Zemba, the Zero Emission Buyers Alliance set up with groups like Amazon and so forth, they're beginning to push from the consumer level because they're very, very impatient um, to get stuff done. And likewise, you know, we, we often talk about our green corridors or whatever else, but we don't have the end consumers in those green corridor discussions. We need to have the car manufacturers, the truck manufacturers in those discussions because it will be those that are most connected to the end customer. So ultimately, who will pay for it will always be the end customer, whether it's through your taxes or so forth. But I think in the early stages, I think another sobering thought is there's obviously been a lot of money being put into renewables recently with the IRA and the US and whatever else. But remember that existing fossil fuels attract as much subsidy as does renewable energy at this time. And I'm not talking about subsidies in maybe less developed countries. I'm talking about subsidies in Europe and the US. So to me, I'm actually quite optimistic because if people can get their head around the fact that there's so much money being subsidized, but it's actually currently today subsidizing fossil fuels and prolonging their life, that is the money we need to be targeting and wheeling it towards subsidizing and putting money into the renewable sector. If I could have put to you the question that actually the cost uh, question in this for the, the end user, be that a consumer or an industrial user, 
the, the shipping industry shouldn't be afraid of that, and the uh, commodities manufacturers shouldn't be afraid of that, because actually today it is so small. It is such a small proportion that, as we saw during the supply chain crisis, that even when the prices spiralled up, trade continued, continued moving. It was a question of actually the, the value of shipping the goods was the thing that mattered, and that the price was something that would get taken into account. So one could argue, if you took that to its logic, logical conclusion, that uh, there are people in shipping who use uh, uh, higher prices as a shield to not do anything. I think that's, that's probably completely true. I've said quite a lot already. I'd like to hear what my, uh, my colleagues have to say. Um, Could I uh, turn uh, this end of the panel to uh, Max Takahashi, uh, Executive Officer of the Decarbonisation Group and the Technical HQ Management Group at NYK. Now, NYK, of course, as uh, we all know, is one of the world's uh, biggest uh, ship owners, uh, and the, technically the second biggest bulk carrier owner with more than 200 ships, um, 23 million deadweights, so a, 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 a huge player in this mar market. Max, is it going to be the ship owner who picks up the bill and takes responsibility for this, or can you work with your charters and with your supply chain? Oh, yes. Uh, ultimately, that the cost for the decarbonization have to be transferred to the customers and the customers to the customers, customers and so on until the final consumers. You know, that is, this is, you know, that the global missions to, to achieve the decarbonization by 2050. But that is not, you know, we are uh, kind of the infra infrastructure of the global economy. And so if, we, if it is requested, to the shipping community to do that, to achieve the mission, and we have to do that. But, you know, we are the infrastructure, and so that all the uh, necessary costs have to be, uh, you know, ultimately that are paid by the end user. Otherwise, that no one can do that. Dr. Sanjay Kutan in the center is the CTO of the Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization. Oh. Almost got it right. <laughs> Here in Singapore. Um, now, you've only been around for, what, 18 months or so, um, yet you're making quite a big mark, uh, may I uh, say. But do you see the trajectory of real pragmatic activity that you believe is necessary to move as quickly as the industry does need to move? I think at, the, uh, at a macro scale, yes, because I think there's um, the reason why not just shipping, but all the economic pillars are trying to decarbonize is because we actually believe there's an existential threat uh, that climate change imposes on the entire human existence. And therefore, because of that why, and people believing, and the leadership believing in that why, uh, is, is creating the momentum that we are seeing. I think uh, if you go back a few years, decarb was hardly talked about. But now it is, and it's front and centre, uh, and competing with all the other challenges in the maritime sector. So I'm actually quite positive uh, about at least the ambition to do the right thing. What I'm less positive about is the ability to realise that ambition within the time frame that is required to actually address this existential threat. And I think from that perspective, it is not just shipping's role. It's every one of us, right? And I think the, the two, two speakers already said this, but who pays? It's the consumer at the end of the day because it is also their lives that we are trying to adjust. So 
either from reduced consumption of goods, you know, and that whole cycle of thinking of recycling, circular economy and everything, reduces the demand for trade at some level, right? And then focus on the important things about trade that really needs to move across, right? So I think that needs to happen, that the, the, there's not enough momentum from the consumer side to give confidence that people are going to demand for green supply chains that will send the right signals across the supply chain from production, transport, distribution. And that <coughs> signal is, I think, we're still way off the mark when it comes to driving this change. And partly because of the relative low price proportion of the total price, there isn't the leverage one way or the other. Indeed, indeed. Could I move to Nobu Shiotsu, the Senior Managing Executive Officer of MOL? Thank you. Now, you are not a, uh, a decarbonisation expert within MOL. You have certainly 20 years' experience of the dry bulk trade, oh, yes. so uh, the master of dry bulk, okay. and only second to MYK in, in, in scale uh, in, in terms of the Japanese ship owners and nearly, what, 100, 100 bulk carriers. But you are responsible for this, this region, and the, uh, the reorganisation which uh, your CEO, um, Hashimoto, uh, Mr. Hashimoto, is, is, is pushing yes. through. How is decarbonisation playing a role in his reorganisation, in shaping MOL as a global player for this new world we're anticipating? Okay, yeah. Julian, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, two years ago, I was transferred from MOL Tokyo to be here, to be responsible for Asian Pacific region. And uh, recently, we, Mitsuhisuke Line, made a you know, mid-term business plan called Blue Action 2035. And uh, one of the you know, uh, main strategy is uh, environmental strategy. And uh, also the end of April, so we made an announcement about a new environment vision 2.2. So actually, uh, first one was issued a couple of years ago. To, you know, our target was, of course, uh, to you know, uh, achieve uh, net zero by 2050. But uh, you know, so this revision shows uh, you know, uh, very remarkable you know, concrete, what can I say, concrete milestones and also the you know, KPIs. So this is very important, especially for in this region. Because uh, in the Asian Pacific, we are now still using, uh, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, so coal and uh, also the, you know, and, uh, you know, other, you know, uh, carbon fuel. But uh, in order to reach net zero, to net zero emission by 2050, we have to utilize, so LNG and other, you know, alternative transitional fuel, right? So... That's why, so well, we are now trying to do, you know, whichever we have to do as of today to reach a net zero emission 2050, especially from this region. Is, is decarbonisation now ingrained in your, in your decision-making culture? Oh, yes. Yeah, definitely, yes. So as a, you know, so one of the leading shipping companies, so we have to, you know, do decarbonization, promotion, 
by ourselves. Of course, you know, so as everybody mentioned, so, you know, all the you know, uh, uh, chains involved, so they have to absorb the total cost, whole cost. But uh, you know, so as a leading shipping company, so we will take our you know, strong initiative to reach uh, you know, uh, decarbonization. So that's why we decided to you know, announce uh, you know, MOL Environment Vision 2.2 recently. And last but certainly not least, I'm uh, going to turn to uh, Sonic Thompson, the MD of bunkers at uh, Sing Fuels. Now, Sonic, you're on the, the front line day to day. You're actually today selling the dirty stuff, if you like, <laughs> the, the stuff that actually enables ships to uh, you know, chug their merry way around the world and, and sadly, uh, sadly um, uh, puff out a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, CO2, 900 million tonnes worth. Yep. Um, today, are Clearly, we'll, we'll come to t what's going to happen tomorrow in a moment. But today, how is the question, decarbonisation question uh, affecting how you are working? How much planning are you putting in, into things? How much adaptation demands from customers? Where's that taking you? Well, we are adapting a very proactive stance. We are reaching out to all our customers. And our customers vary from very, very small customers to the big customers of this world. And we see a very mixed kind of signal. Um, there are definitely uh, some customers, and, and the majority of the very big ones, that's taking a very active stand and investing a lot in that. But there is also a wait-and-see approach, as I see it, on, on the mid-size and even the bigger ones as of today. Uh, of course, the prices have an influence on that, and, and, and that. But there is starting some trials, but... I feel that it's sometimes more for optics than actually kind of wholeheartedly doing it uh, today. Um, but from a, from a bunker trading perspective, we are mapping all the suppliers, all the, the fuel oils, what are the prices, trying to create as much transparency for the customers as possible. Because obviously, with new products coming in, there will be a great variance on pricing. And we saw that on the low sulfur fuel oil implementation in 2020. There's a lot of variance, and, and our job is to find all the suppliers and, and, and provide the best price uh, out there. Uh, and yeah, basically provide as much transparency as we can to the customers. It's commonplace to talk of this multi-fuel future. Sure. <laughs> um, do you anticipate that there will still be the differential pricing between different regions in different places for the different multi-fuels? And, and consequently, that you will have this spreadsheet of prices and options which will need to be managed? Yes, very much so. I believe so. Regardless of the, of, the, of the fuel type, there will be a volume of scale. I still see Singapore as being the, the major hub. Uh, and of course, they will have some price competitiveness advantage on that. Uh, I think even it will even be greater going forward because there will be uh, suppliers that will only do the supplies at the big hubs, or the big ports, meaning that the smaller hubs, there will be much greater variance, much higher prices uh, at, at the, the smaller ports, at least in this transition phase. So yes, very much so. I, I see a lot of uh, fluctuations in, in pricing uh, across the bed. So it's going to be greater complexity, for greater sure. um, need for um, nimble yes. marketplace. Yeah. And complexity also on, on, the, on the quality, right? On, on the products, there's no standardized kind of form right now. So it's also important to look at is what's the calorific values and so on. What are the actual qualities? And you have to be very careful with the new alternatives until there is some sort of global standardization of the, of the quality specific, uh, specifications. 
Andrew, could I just ask you a bit about the, the investment case? Uh, Fortescue, as, as is uh, your, uh, your chairman's want, has clearly gone big on this sort of thing, and uh, you're uh, building these VLC, VLOCs with, uh, to burn ammonia, and uh, sorry, retrofitting them to uh, burn, uh, burn ammonia. Um, why ammonia and why not methanol? Um, good, good question. I think we, we very much look forward to the time where we can actually physically be able to, to bunker ammonia rather than methanol. I think many studies have been conducted to show the green credentials of green ammonia, um, not just any ammonia. Um, and I think that's the biggest concern that I actually have today is that I have to be careful to, to bite the engine manufacturer that propels us. Um, but they're selling methanol engines, which are actually dual fuel engines. And that makes them look very good. It makes the companies that are placing those orders very good. But there isn't any methanol. And there isn't any prospect of a methanol coming. On the other hand, there is an abundance of ammonia waiting to be unleashed once the regulations permit it to be used as a maritime fuel. And this, this is the challenge I have, because what that actually means and what that shapes for the future is a, a good owner today maybe orders his ship with a methanol propulsion, um, with a dual fuel methanol propulsion. Maybe two years' time, actually, ammonia wins the debate, if there is a debate to be had, he will then sell that ship, and that ship will probably be burning fuel off for the rest of his life, for the next 20 years. So every order today that I see for methanol, apart from those prudent owners who have secured some supply, obviously some of the big groups like you know, the Mono Group, they are actually just propagating the use of fuel oil. So I think ammonia provides the completely you know, near, near clean solution um, for the maritime fuel industry. And I think that's, that's backed up by the evidence. Singapore's decarb center, Merce McKinney Honors decarb center are all pointing towards ammonia. I think to the credit of Singapore, and we talked about earlier who's gonna pay for all this, we often look at governments to either tax you or to subsidize you. Um, ultimately, you need good policy, and I think Singapore has great policy. We've seen recently their EOI for provision of ammonia, some marine fuel in Singapore for energy in Singapore as well. That is great policy, and there's no question that our molecules that we aim to supply to this and other markets, they're massively oversubscribed by volume because there's massive pent-up demand to buy ammonia. What we have to accelerate is its adoption in a safe, dependable way. And I, that's why I think you know, the methanol, to me, is a little bit of a sideshow. Lots of noise, lots of orders, but no methanol. Well, I've got you, uh, Andrew. The, it's interesting. The last three years, 2020, 21, and 22, there was more cash made in shipping by ship owners than in any other three-year period in history, by a factor of about 60%. Yeah. Very little of that has been reinvested at a time when the industry needs to have a new fleet built. Is the industry, are ship owners missing a, missing a trick in feeding all that money back to shareholders, both private and public, rather than investing? I think they, they, they certainly are missing a trick, and it's not just the ship owners that have made quite a lot of money over the last few years. You know, the commodity giants have also made money. The traders have also made money. I think, from our perspective, we've taken leadership by committing that money to fund the decarbonisation journey of our group. I do call on ship owners to do the same. We often hear, well, there's nothing available, therefore we're not going to do anything. This sort of, to use a Singapore expression, see how. We cannot see how. I was at a shipping event last night, and honestly, talking about decarbonisation was about as exciting as talking about Y2K, if any of you are old enough to remember that. It's like, oh my God, it's not, you know, I was, two weeks ago, 
I was at a forum of the Pacific Islanders um, here in Singapore pre-RMO discussion, and I suddenly remembered, hey, this is about 1.5 degrees, which in my mind I keep thinking of 1.5 meters in sea level, but this is, you know, we've even forgotten, we probably have at the beginning of these forums, we should show what climate change is all about, because I think we forget about it, we go into this drudgery of decarbonization, but it's really, really important because it impacts people. So yes, ship owners, they may not have the choice, but they do have the chance to drive, to accelerate. And I think you know, if, if the ship owners of today don't do that, the ship owners of tomorrow are already starting to do that, and they will be different. The ship owners of today who are not doing this, the ship owners of today who are putting the money out to dividends rather than investing in renewable projects, are, will not be the ship owners of tomorrow, who I hope will be those that are renewably based. Here's more on the environment and the business of the ocean. The Green Seas newsletter explored how the International Maritime Organization is gearing up for a meeting in July that could lead to a historic agreement on decarbonizing shipping. But to make its mark, it will have to bring countries together that can't seem to get along anywhere else. There are signs of hope, with even some conservative delegations seeing the eventual need for a price on carbon in some form, and some looking to the opportunities posed by Greenfield's production. Get the newsletter in your inbox by signing up at tinyurl.com slash greenseas. Next week, we'll be at the Nor Shipping Conference and Exhibition in Norway, where we'll be live streaming the next episode from the stage on Tuesday. Listen in at the Tradewinds Nor Shipping Live Center. You'll find it at tinyurl.com slash twnorshipping. Music for this episode is by DMD Production on Pixabay. <laughs>